pastorals include 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. They were first called the pastorals. Uh, they weren't always known this way. They were first called this in the 1700s. And it actually started in Germany. And as the Germans adopted it, it soon became universal that they were called the pastorals. And they were called that because they were written to two men, to Timothy and Titus, both of which were acting kind of like pastors. They were in a unique position that will never be duplicated. Uh, we'll talk about their position in a minute. They were functioning in some way as pastors or elders. And these letters are intended to give them some instruction on how the church is supposed to operate. Uh, anybody know a good verse to prove that out of 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus? I know, but I don't know where it's at. What, is it, what does the verse say? Do you know? Good. Yes. First Timothy three, verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And so this title pastoral epistles fits really well with first Timothy and Titus doesn't fit as well with 2 Timothy, because 2 Timothy has a lot more personal information for Paul, but it fits especially well for those two books, 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, Edmund Hebert, who, if you don't have his New Testament introduction and you want a good introduction, Edmund Hebert has a great three-in-one volume, three volumes in one, that's excellent. Um, he says this, the epistles contain more than is implied in the term pastoral epistles. That is to say, when you read 2 Timothy, you're going to learn a lot about Paul and a lot about the circumstances that Paul has. And like with every book we've looked at, there are controversies. Lots and lots of controversies. In fact, these are some of the most highly debated books in the New Testament. Edmund Hebert again. Pastoral epistles have been a fierce battleground being more severely attacked than any other Pauline writing. And of course, what do you think the main issue is? He didn't write it. Huh? He didn't write it? Authorship. Why do you think they always go after authorship? Because there's something in the text that they like. That is very true in this case. But why do you think authorship. If they're trying to discredit the book, why go after authorship? Why not just go after the contents of the book itself? Yeah, if if Paul didn't write it, it's probably not inspired. Can't trust it. Now there's three basic groups of people on these three books, okay? There's three different positions someone can take. And I've labeled these my own label. Edmund Hebert had his own label, but this is how I labeled them. There's the conservative group. We, I would fit into the conservative group. Most of you are going to fit into the conservative group. That is, you hold fast to Paul was the author. There's a compromising group. The compromising group says Paul probably wrote some of it, but then there's other parts Paul didn't write. And then the last group, the one we're going to spend some time talking about today, I call it the crazy group because the argument is crazy, not the people. They hold that Paul didn't write any of the material, which is why I think it's a crazy position to have. 
we don't have time to dig into all of what they say about these epistles. Let's just look at the conservative group real quick. The conservative group, which says Paul wrote the books, they actually have all the external evidence on their side. If you're looking for external evidence, it's not going to support the compromising group and it's not going to support the crazy group. It's going to be on the side of the conservatives. Edmund Hebert again, I'm really leaning on him hard today. The conservative position has in its favor all the weight of the external evidence. There is nothing in church history that would make someone to doubt the exists or the, the reality that Paul wrote these books. George Finley wrote his commentary and he said this, There is not a shred of historical evidence against the letters. The witness of the early church to their place in the New Testament canon and their Pauline authorship is as clear, full, and unhesitating as that given to the other epistles. There's just nothing in church history to suggest that this, these books were written by anyone other than Paul. And in fact, the internal evidence is just as strong. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Titus 1, Paul, a bondservant of God. And they say, well, no, 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 you see, that's what you don't get. The person claimed to be Paul, but this isn't actually Paul. This is a forgery. This is what we would call the pseudepigrapha. It was someone else who was writing their little book and they wanted to put Paul's name on it because then it would get publicity. It would be like if I wrote a book and put John MacArthur's name on it. It would sell more. So this must be a forgery. Here's the problem. We have forgeries that we know are forgeries. We have books that are written by people that claim to be one person and they're not. And one of the things that you notice about these books is that they love vagueness. They love generalities. They don't give specific information. Like, they don't name names. But the author of these three books names names. Just, I'm going to give you a couple of the names that he lists in his book. Timothy, Titus, Carpus, Demas, Crescens, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Alexander the Coppersmith, Prissa, Aquila, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Lunus, Claudia, Hymenaeus, Alexander multiple names. That's in three little tiny books. If this is a forgery, the author went to great lengths to name names, and by doing so, he opens himself to, up to exposure. Because the more details you give, the more opportunities you give other people to discredit you and prove that you're lying. 2 Timothy 4, he gives other kinds of details. 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Why would he mention leaving the cloak? If he's not Paul, how does he even know that? And then he could be easily disproven because, well, the people in Troas would be like, Paul never left his cloak here, if he's making it up. Or 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, Paul writes to Timothy, says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Why would Paul tell Timothy to drink some wine? Okay, good. For your frequent ailments, it's probably for a medicinal purpose. If you drink a little wine, it can ease some of your pain. What's another reason he would tell them don't just drink water 
drank wine. That was how you purified water. Is that what you were going to say? No. <laughs> what were you going to say? It was wrong. I was just thinking of like communion, but that's not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he knew he was sick. Yeah. Was yeah. If you're drinking unfiltered water, which they didn't have filtration back then, mm. you're going to get sick a lot. There's all sorts of bugs and viruses and that stuff. And if he's really pious and he's decides, well, I'm going to abstain from all alcohol altogether, all he can drink is unfiltered water. And so he's going to get sick a lot. And Paul writes to him and says, look, take a little wine. Just so you don't have to get sick so much, you'll be able to actually do ministry a little bit better. If this is a forgery, one, how would he know? And two, it wouldn't be hard for Timothy to turn around and say, um, that's not true. Or the people who knew Timothy. Now, most of the people who take this position and say that this is a forgery try to date this book, these books all the way into the second century. Why is that a problem? Why can that not work? They wouldn't have been contemporaries. What else? I'm sorry? They wouldn't be tied to Christ like... Okay. I think you're trying to get the personal relationships that they had, right? Right. Yeah. When you find people dating New Testament books into the second century, you know they deny the authorship. The reason is because Paul was dead long before the second century came. And so were they. And so were were all these people. And so if it was written in the second century, you have a person who's 100 years removed, who's lying about his identity... And he's making stuff up as he goes. Why should I read anything he writes at this point, if that's true? And when they deny authorship, what they're doing is they're attacking the book. In fact, the external evidence and the evidence for Paul's authorship is so strong that Paul's authorship of these three books was uncontested for 1,800 years of church history. Okay, I I need to revamp that statement. Correction. There were two people in church history who denied Paul's authorship. One guy was a guy named Tatian. He lived in the second century. He was declared a heretic. He believed there are many gods, kind of like the Mormons, that you have different levels of deity. Obviously not Christian. And another guy, anyone can guess who the other guy was who denied Paul's authorship? Marcion. Marcion, yeah. We've heard about him before. Yeah. Marcion was another heretic of the second century. He's most well known for cutting pieces out of the Bible and excluding most of the New Testament and a lot of the works of Paul. Okay, so the evidence for Paul's authorship is really strong. Let's go to the crazy group. And I'm just, again, I'm just going to present some of their arguments for the sake of time and for my sanity because I don't like reading it. <laughs> First, as David said earlier, All of their criticism is against the internal evidence of the book. They don't get any evidence from outside of the book. So what are some of their arguments? Well, one of their arguments is that Paul's well-known doctrines that are clearly articulated in other books are not found in these three epistles. Doctrines like union with Christ, pneumatology, reconciliation, they say, well, if you read through these epistles, those doctrines are completely absent. Ergo, Paul didn't write it. Anybody have a problem with that argument? What's wrong with that argument? It may not have been the subject of the letter. <laughs> well, he read about it. 
Exactly, yeah. He might be writing about something different. Go to 1 Timothy. We're just going to walk through these books real quick. And I, I just want to show you some Pauline theology. 1 Timothy 1. Would someone read verse 15? It is a trusting and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Classic Paul. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. Speaking of Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 4.1, a little pneumatology for you. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Go over to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 9. Again, speaking of Jesus, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to His own purpose, and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I am appointed a preacher and an apostle of, and a teacher, excuse me. 2 Timothy 1, verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Chapter 2, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Last one, uh, Titus 3, starting in verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the base of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by faith, by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Classic Pauline doctrine and theology. But then this is where the, the liberals will say, well, yeah, but I mean, he only went into it a little bit. He just mentioned it and kept on moving. And in the other epistles, Ephesians 1, he goes into great lengths to describe his theology and his doctrine. Why doesn't he do it here? Um, these guys are functioning like pastors. These guys don't need a basic theology lesson. They need encouragement and they need help learning how to actually run a church because, you know, nobody's run a church before. And so Paul is writing them not to give them a basic theology lesson. As we'll learn about Timothy, he knew his theology. He's writing to them to help them understand how to lead in a church. But the basic argument, their, their basic argument here is this. If Paul doesn't say something about this topic... It must not be Paul. That's the basic argument. That is called an argument from silence. Right. You can't point to what's not there and say that's proof of what it is or it isn't. It is a fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. This is why I call it the crazy group. Because the argument is crazy, not the people. If you make that argument, you can exclude every book of the Bible. You can go to any book, pick something that's not there, and just say, well, that proves the author didn't, this guy didn't write it. 
Edmund Hebert, such an objection could be used to discredit large portions of genuine epistles. You can discredit anything with that argument. You can take something your pastors here have written and say, well, he didn't cover this topic in it, therefore he must not have written it. And they only subject biblical books to this kind of criticism. They don't do that to William Shakespeare. They don't do it to Aristotle or Socrates or Plato or anyone else of ancient history. Only the Bible. Okay, so that's one argument. What's their next argument? Chronology. They claim that Paul could not have written the books because the books describe events that did not happen in the book of Acts. Because it's not in the book of Acts, it could not have occurred. And Paul did not write these books. You'll remember that at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is where? Acts ends and Paul is where? He's in Rome. Why is he in Rome? He's been arrested. I want to take, go back to Acts, Acts 28. I want, to, I want you to see the conditions Paul's in at the end of the book of Acts. And this will help us kind of build the groundwork for understanding these epistles. Acts 28, Paul finished his third missionary journey. He goes to Jerusalem. He's going to deliver something to Jerusalem. Anybody remember what he's going to deliver? Finances, right? Money. He's taking a collection from the Gentile churches, and he's going to deliver it to the church in Jerusalem. He gets there. He delivers the money, and then he is arrested, and he appeals to Caesar, and he gets on a boat, and they send him to Rome. Acts 28, verse 15. Paul arrives in Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Paul arrives in Italy. He's just outside the city of Rome. And all of his friends find out Paul's here. And they all rush down to see him. These are all the brethren. The apostle is here. We finally get to meet the apostle and they're there to see him. Not only are all of his friends and all of the brethren there to meet him, but he's given considerable freedom. Acts 28, verse 16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. He's allowed to stay in his own rented quarters. We'll see that in a minute. And he lives in those rented quarters, and he's allowed to be visited by people. He's allowed to go out as long as the guard is with him. He's allowed to do ministry. Acts 28, verse 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He's calling people to him. He's having all these visitors, all these leaders coming to meet with him. And he was in that house prison for two years. Acts 28, verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Notice the considerable freedom that he's been given. The Romans aren't doing anything to stop people from visiting. The Romans aren't doing anything to stop him from talking to people or sharing the gospel or doing ministry. And he was doing ministry. Verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Yes. That's a good point. Yeah, if Paul would have died under his care, he would have died next. Yep. This was a great time of ministry. 
go over to the prison epistles, go over to Philippians. Paul has a clear expectation. In Philippians 1, you guys remember from the prison epistles what he expects? Does he expect to die in this first imprisonment? No, he does not. Philippians 1, verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. I'm going to remain, and I'm going to come to you again. Chapter 2, verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. During Paul's first imprisonment, the, Philippians, the letter to the Philippians was written at the end of that imprisonment. He says, I know my trial's coming, and I already know I'm getting out of this. This is not going to end in my death. He expected to be released. The pastoral epistles does not paint an image like this. Um, go over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul wrote before his death. 2 Timothy 1 Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul's in prison again, which isn't unusual for Paul. He spent a lot of time in jails. Chapter 1, verse 16, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He's in chains. At the end of Acts, yes, he's under house arrest, but he's free to do ministry. And so it seems as though the, the Roman government has a friendly relationship with him. By the time you get to 2 Timothy, the view of the Roman government seems to have changed. And Paul is no longer just this guy who got arrested by the Jews, and we don't know what's going on with him. You don't have to go back there, but 2 Timothy 1, verse 12 for this reason, I also suffer these things. Paul describes his current imprisonment as suffering. Chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as what? A criminal. The view of the Roman government here has changed. And he's no longer just this itinerant preacher who was arrested by Jews. Now he's considered a criminal by the Roman government. In Acts, Paul arrives in Rome and everybody knew where he was and they just went straight to him. By the time 2 Timothy gets there, it seems that people don't know where he is. 2 Timothy 1, verse 16. The Lord grant to Onesiphorus for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. It seems he didn't realize that Paul was imprisoned. And not only did he not know that he was imprisoned, but he didn't know where he was imprisoned. And so he had to eagerly go and search for Paul. Nobody knew where he was. He was not under house arrest. He was now in a prison. And in 2 Timothy, Paul's expectation is not to be released. He clearly expects that he's going to die. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 6. Do I have a volunteer who would like to read verses uh, 6 through 8? For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, 
fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Thank you. Uh, jump down to verse 9. Make every effort to come see me. Verse 21. Make every effort to come see me before winter. Get here quick, Timothy. My time is running out. They also point to evidence that Paul um, made trips that are not described in the book of Acts. There's trips described here or mentioned here that we have no record of in the book of Acts. One example, 1 Timothy... Actually, I have a couple examples, but 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Just to help focus, I've highlighted the portion where it talks about the trip. This doesn't fit anything in the book of Acts. Paul apparently was in Ephesus. He leaves Ephesus and goes to Macedonia. Well, Paul was in Ephesus on the second missionary journey in Acts 18. And in Acts 18, he did leave Ephesus and go to Macedonia. But we know it's not this one. It's not this trip from Ephesus to Macedonia that he's talking about. Because in Acts 18, he didn't leave Timothy behind. Timothy was with Paul in Macedonia. How do we know that? Because he was there when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul and Timothy. And once he left, it seems Timothy remained with Paul all the way back to Jerusalem. That's actually his third missionary journey, excuse me. Acts 18 is one, and then Acts 19 on the third missionary journey, he left, and Timothy is with him. So that can't be it. This has to describe a trip to Ephesus, leaving Ephesus, leaving Timothy behind, and him going to Macedonia, and this trip is not described in Acts. And this is where the group says, well, that's proof. This can't be Paul. Here's another one. 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, 13. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. 2 Timothy 4, 20. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick in Miletus. Again, we have no record of this in the book of Acts. We have no record in Acts of Paul going to Troas and meeting with Carpus. He goes to Troas in Acts, but no mention of Carpus. Final example, Titus 1, verse 5. Paul and Titus established churches in Crete. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, so that you would appoint elders. Titus 3, verse 12. When I said Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. This also does not fit with the record in Acts. Paul was in Crete one time in the book of Acts. Anybody remember where that is? Yes, sir. 27. Paul's traveling to Rome as a prisoner for his first imprisonment, and they hit some rough, rough weather. Uh, Acts 27, verse 7, When we sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Sinaitis, since the wind did not permit us to go any further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon, 
And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens. Fair Havens is on the south side of the island of Crete. So Paul leaves Jerusalem. He's sailing, hits harsh weather, which I showed you a picture a few weeks ago of the weather in the Med. And they pull into Fair Havens. But he's there, and there's no mention of any kind of ministry being conducted in Fair Havens. He's under guard. He's in chains. So there's no ministry being conducted there. And also, there's no evidence Titus is with him. So this discussion about, I've left you in Crete, in Titus 1, Titus wasn't even with him in Acts 27. So what is Titus referring to? Okay, so I've given you three or four examples of events that are happening in the pastoral epistles that are not in the book of Acts. And the group says here, that proves that Paul didn't write these three books. But that requires a major assumption. What's the assumption required to make that conclusion? Yeah. That Acts was supposed to be a full biography of Paul's life. And if it's not in Acts, it couldn't have happened. Or it assumes that Paul, we get to the end of Acts, Paul's released from his first imprisonment, and Paul's like, you know what? I'm done with ministry. I'm gonna I'm gonna retire. This is where this this is why I'm going through all of this. This helps, this gives us an opportunity to go through and reconstruct something of a timeline for when these books were written. And Notice I said we have to reconstruct a timeline. Acts is nice because it's a, it's a historical book and it gives us the timeline for us. Here we have to take all the pieces and try to piece them together. So, this isn't going to be a perfect timeline and there are going to be places where people disagree. That's fine. But this is an idea of how these books came together. Paul is released from his first Roman imprisonment around 63 A.D. That was his ex expectation. That's what he was expecting to do. It probably happened. Philemon, verse 22, he says, At the same time, also prepare a lodging for me. I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Philemon was in Colossae. He fully expected to leave the prison and go to Colossae and visit with his friends. He gets the verdict. The verdict is announced. And Paul sends his friend Timothy to Philippi to check on the Philippians and also to let them know the results of the trial. Philippians 2, verse 19, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He repeated that again in verse 23, Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. So Paul gets this news about his trial, about his condition, and his first goal was send Timothy to Philippi, let them know how I'm doing. And then Paul leaves Rome. Depending on who you read will determine where he went. Some people say uh, Edmund Hebert takes a position that he left Rome and he goes straight to Colossae. And he gets to Colossae by sailing from Rome. He lands in Ephesus gets on this little highway and runs straight to Colossae. I think William Hendrickson has a better solution. And that is that he left Rome and he didn't go to Colossae immediately. He stopped in Crete first. There's Ephesus. There's Crete. He would have sailed down and he would have come right past Crete. Otherwise, he would have had to sail down, come up, 
hit Ephesus, go to Colossae, turn around, come back, sail back down, then come back up. That's a lot of sailing. Titus is already in Crete. Both Hendrickson and Hebert take the position he's already in Crete. He leaves Rome, he comes to Crete. And he spends some time there. We don't know how much time he spends in Crete with Titus. But he helps Titus evangelize and build some churches. And then he leaves. And when he leaves, he gets to his destination and he writes back a letter to Titus. And he sends it likely in the hands of two men. Titus 3, verse 13. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Zenos, all we know about Zenos is that he's a lawyer. We know that because that's what verse 13 says. Apollos is the same guy you've heard multiple times throughout the book of Acts. He was described as being mighty in the scriptures and fervent in spirit. Paul leaves Crete and he goes to Asia. He goes to Ephesus, comes down the road, and goes to Colossae. When he's in Ephesus, he has to confront some false teachers. 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. And at some point, while he's in Ephesus, Timothy rejoins him. Where was Timothy? He went to Philippi, and they apparently had planned to meet back up again in Ephesus. And so the two meet up. Paul realizes that the church at Ephesus is in big trouble. These false teachers have shown up, by the way, in Acts 20. He warned them, when I leave, false teachers will come in like ravenous wolves. He realizes there's false teachers there, and now he decides it would be better for me to leave Timothy here so Timothy can help this church and he can help deal with the false teachers. So Paul leaves Ephesus, he leaves Timothy behind, he leaves Ephesus and he goes north to Macedonia, where Timothy had just come from. And while in Macedonia, he writes back to Timothy, the letter of 1 Timothy. This is also the point at which he writes the letter of Titus. If you read and compare Timothy, 1 Timothy and Titus together, it appears that those two books were written right next to each other. Now, you can argue on which book was written first. That's also another debate we don't have time for. These two books would have been written around 63 AD. 1 Timothy and Titus around 63 AD. And he writes in Titus that he plans to send the winter, spend the winter, in Nicopolis, we've looked at that, that's Titus 3, verse 12. So he was up here near Philippi. He comes down and he spends the winter there in Nicopolis. Notice where that puts him. Puts him on the other side of the land, on a port. From Nicopolis, around 64 AD, Paul then makes a trip. He goes west. Where do you think he goes? No, not Rome. Spain. Romans 15. Remember, he said he was going to Rome for the purpose. He wanted to get to the Romans so they could help him on his way to Spain. And it's believed he goes and he spends two years in Spain. And he's there through 64 AD when the burning of Rome occurs. Nero sets fire to Rome 
and then afterwards he blames the Christians for it and begins a persecution. And Paul is likely in Spain for the start of that persecution. He returns from Spain late 66 when the, the seas have calmed down a little bit. And according to 2 Timothy, he stops in at least three places. He stops in Troas. He stops in Miletus. And he stops in Corinth, which is over here. Now, what order did he stop in those? We don't know. Why did he stop in those? We don't know. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.12, he was in Troas. 2 Timothy 4.20, he was in Miletus and Corinth. We have no indication of why he went to those places and what he did while he was there. At some point in all of this, he's arrested again. Anybody know when he was arrested? Yeah, I don't either. Nobody knows. We just know that he's arrested at some point. We don't know where he was. We don't know the circumstances of why he was arrested. We know that he ends up being arrested and taken back to Rome. And from Rome, in a prison, he writes the letter of 2 Timothy. And then shortly thereafter, depending on who you read, 67, 68 AD, Paul is executed by beheading in Rome. Did Timothy ever make it out to see him? We don't know. That would have been sad if he didn't. You know, Timothy would have been crushed. Okay, questions. Have I lost everybody? You guys tracking with me? I didn't know he was released. Yeah, the first imprisonment, he was released. Second one, he was released from Earth. Mm-mm. So second, first Timothy, he's he's traveling around. Second Timothy is after he's dead. Yeah, he's in prison for the last time mm-hmm. in Rome. The passage it says he spent X amount of years in Spain. Or? That's not in there. Okay, that's it. it's an assumption. So that's the other thing I was going to say. There's a lot of areas where we're making some assumptions to put all that together. And if you like, you read Hebert or Hendrickson, they both have an outline, and their outline varies a little bit. That's the best estimate on how that all worked out. But that is to show you that it's not completely unreasonable that these events happened after his second imprisonment. Yes? Uh, Speaking of the second imprisonment, I mean, that kind of unfolded like it was still the Jews that like spurred the Romans to execute Paul. Was that how that happened? We don't know. Okay. We don't know why he was arrested. We don't know where he was when he was arrested. It seems like he had already been, they had already changed their view. Now that the fire had already occurred, the Roman government had a very negative view of Christians, and Paul was a well known, the emperor had already seen him, and the emperor knew he was a Christian, and the emperor knew what he was up to. Yes? Is it true that Paul encountered Nero? Probably. Okay. And like at, the, at the first imprisonment, because he appeals to Caesar. In, at the end of the book of Acts, and that's why he's shipped to Rome the first time. Mm-hmm. And so it's likely that he's seen Nero face to face. Whether or not they had a long personal conversation, I have no idea. But it's likely that he saw Nero face to face. And then Nero murdered all of his advisors that were keeping him sane, and he went off the rails. Yeah. And <laughs> he really did go crazy. How long a time frame is all this going on? About five years. 
From the end of his first Roman imprisonment to his death is about four to five years. 63 to 68. Okay, quick recap. Paul is the author. All three books were written after the book of Acts, after his first Roman imprisonment, after he's released. First, Timothy and Titus were likely written in 63 AD. I will tell you, there are some who date Titus between 65 and 66. And the reason they do that is because in their outline of all those events, they put the writing of Titus after the trip to Spain. Just letting you know. It's, it's not heresy, it's just a different opinion. Uh, then he wrote 2 Timothy from his Roman prison, likely 66 to 67 AD. Does that give you a good idea on the dating and how all that worked out? Okay. Let's talk about the recipients. I have 11, 10 minutes. All right. Who is Timothy? What do we know about Timothy? His name is actually a compound Greek word. Timotheos. Recognize any of those words? Theos. Means God. Timo comes from a word Timé, which means to honor or to reverence. So his name literally refers to honoring God. And his parents were, at least one of his parents was likely a Christian. Probably not his father. His father is described as a Greek and likely passed away before the book of Acts. But in Acts 16.1, we are given some information about Timothy. Acts 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. Second, uh, you can say there in Acts, but in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, we find out her name. Also, his grandmother was a believer. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. So both his mother and his grandmother were believers. He was likely a native of the town of Lystra. If you notice in Acts 16, 1, Paul goes to Derby and then to Lystra, verse 2. And he, that would be Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So it's likely that Timothy was a resident there in Lystra. Lystra was a little town in the province of Galatia. And he was likely converted by Paul. In Acts 14, 8 through 20, he's not mentioned there, but that seems like the best place to put it. And you say, well, why would you put his conversion under Paul? Well, because Paul says he's his son in the faith. We'll look at that in a minute. And by the time Paul arrives in Lystra, Timothy is already a well-known and beloved Christian man. And all the brethren there know who he is, they know his faith, and they commend Timothy to Paul. He's probably serving in the church there. It doesn't appear that he was raised as a Jew. He was Jewish. His mother was Jewish. Acts 16, verse 3, it says he was circumcised. Paul had him circumcised, not because Paul was trying to get him to be a legalist, but just because he's a Jewish man who's going to be trying to convert Jews, and he's uncircumcised, and the Jews probably wouldn't respect that very much, and it would be helpful to him. But he was very knowledgeable in the Scriptures. And he had an education in the scriptures. At the end of 2 Timothy, this is a verse you guys 
have heard, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to faith. So he knew scriptures, he was converted by Paul, and once commended to Paul, Paul and Timothy had a fantastic little relationship. These guys were dear friends. Paul calls him a brother. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.1, Colossians 1.1, we're moving faster for the sake of time. Romans 16, verse 21, he calls him a fellow worker. He says the same thing about him, 1 Thessalonians 3.2. He's my fellow worker in the faith. And not just a fellow worker, at the end of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 16.10, he describes him as being almost equal with Paul. He says, he is working just as I am working. And he describes almost an equality between Paul and Timothy. At the beginning of 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, he calls him my son, likely referring to the fact that Timothy was converted under Paul. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, he is called the beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Paul recognized his usefulness for ministry, and he took him along. But before they went, and before Paul really brought him into the ministry, he was formally inducted, you might say, by the laying on of hands. First uh, Timothy 4, verse 14, it says, by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. That would be the elders of the local church. And according to 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul was there at his ordination. And once he was ordained, he did a whole lot of ministry with Paul. Now, I'm not going to give you all the books, but just a couple of the books where he's named as being with Paul. Philippians, Philippians 1, 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, Philemon 1, Timothy's with him in all of them. He was there at the Macedonian vision in Acts 17. He was there in Berea when Paul fled from Berea in Acts 17, 14. When Thessalonica was struggling and Paul needed someone to go and help the Thessalonians, it was young Timothy that Paul sent as his representative. He then met Paul in Corinth in Acts 18.5, and he was, right, he was there present for both letters to the Thessalonians. And then for some reason, he kind of disappears. And he disappears for about five years. We don't know where he went. But after five years, he shows up again on Paul's third missionary journey. And it's during this time that Timothy himself makes a trip out to Corinth. And he goes out there by himself. Remember that hornet's nest of a church at Corinth where they had all those problems and all those false teachers? When Paul wanted someone to go and help fix that church, he sends Timothy. Timothy rejoins Paul at Ephesus. He was there with Paul for the writing of 2 Corinthians. He was with Paul during his trip to Jerusalem at the end of the third missionary journey where Paul was eventually arrested. And then he shows up again in Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Remember the order of the epistles? Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon are written at the beginning of his first imprisonment. Colossians 1.1, Timothy is with him at the beginning of the imprisonment. At the end of the first Roman imprisonment, Timothy is still there. Philippians 1. 
It's Timothy that he sends to Philippi to tell the results of his first trial. And in the last days of his life, it's Timothy that Paul writes to and says, Come to me quickly. I want to see you again. Questions? I have like two minutes and there's really no point in me going to the next one because I'm not going to be able to finish it. Not even close. One thing, just, you know, he writes to him in a hurry. I'll, I'll, you know, dude, get, get it to Timothy, the letter to Timothy, and then they get it can be a problem. Yeah. In today's time, that's not not the big issue, but back then, how, how did they do that? <laughs> yeah, he would have had to have a messenger, probably one of the brethren there at the Roman church, who took the letter and carried it out to Timothy. And I guess he would have known about where Timothy would be. Was Paul still alive by the time Timothy got the letter? Was Paul still alive when Timothy got to Rome? You got to feel bad for Timothy. He makes that long trip hoping to see Paul. And he gets there and finds out Paul's not here anymore. That'd be rough. Questions? Comments? It's a shame you have to go over all the controversial stuff. And you don't really get to get to the meat of what, what was written. Well, we're going to get to the meat of it. We're going to talk about the contents of the book. But see, that controversy just opens and up opens up the opportunity that we can go through and look at the actual background of the book. And I think the background's important because if you don't understand where Paul is in those books, those books don't make as much sense and they're not as, they're not as clear. And the whole point of this is to give you a lot of the background of the books. So we'll, we'll get into some of the content next week. And I didn't even go through all of the controversies. <laughs> There's a lot of it I left out. I had to read it, but I didn't teach it. Okay. Anything else? No? All right. Let's pray real quick, and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you for uh, faithful men like Paul and Timothy. Uh, we thank you that you've preserved these books, uh, that we can know how to, to not only live our lives, but we can know how the church is supposed to run. We can know what the church is supposed to be and what it's supposed to do. And uh, we stand on the shoulders of men like Paul and Timothy. Uh, this morning as we come together to worship you, to praise you. And so we thank you so much, and we ask that you would be with us this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.